Sydney Environment Institute presents the Environmental Justice 2017 Conference Keynote Conversation 6, EJ, Gender and Materiality, with Chair Astrida Namanes and speakers Sherilyn McGregor and Leslie Head. Hi, good morning. Um, before we begin, I would also like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the uh, Gadigal people of the Ora Nation. I very much appreciated uh, Joel Davison's welcome last night at the reception, and I hope I can also do my part in making you feel comfortable here. Hence, our speakers have already occupied the couch. Um, we have taken it upon ourselves to hopefully have a conversation. Um, before I introduce them, I will just introduce myself. My name is Astrida Namanis. I work here at the University of Sydney in the Department of Gender and Cultural Studies. Um, but I was grown up by the lands and waters of the Great Lakes St. Lawrence watershed on the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and the Anishinaabeg of Turtle Island or Canada. And my own research is in feminist environmental humanities with a focus on water. And I'm very privileged and honored to be invited to chair this conversation today on uh, gender and environment. So I have the pleasure of introducing to you, first of all, Professor Leslie Head, um, who is the head of the School of Geography at the University of Melbourne. She was previously an ARC Australian Laureate Fellow at the University of Wollongong, and is known for her research on the implications of managing Australian landscapes that have been peopled for thousands of years. In the past decade or so, Leslie has focused on the cultural dimensions of environmental issues, including climate change, and her current uh, collaborative research brings ethnic diversity into these debates. Leslie's latest book is Hope and Grief in the Anthropocene, published by Routledge in 2016. And beside Leslie, we have Sherilyn McGregor, who is a reader in environmental politics at the University of Manchester, cross-appointed to the Department of Politics and the Sustainable Consumption Institute. She holds a PhD in environmental studies from York University in Toronto, but has spent the past 14 years in the UK. Sherilyn has written extensively on feminist ecological citizenship, how gender shapes the politics of climate change and the connections and tensions between movements for social justice, uh, feminism particularly, and movements for ecological sustainability. She is particularly interested in how citizens work together to challenge unfair systems and improve everyday life for marginalized people in rich countries. Sherilyn's most recent project, which she is co-producing with grassroots activists, looks at rubbish as political matter in the deprived and stigmatized inner city ward of Moss Side in Manchester. So I am, let's give them a round of applause right now. Why not? Okay, so um, if you're at all awake or looking around you, um, you will know that it's a very good time to be talking about environment. And if you read the news at all, um, you probably have noticed it's also a very good time to be talking about feminism. So why not talk about these things together? Seems probably the perfect time. Um, of course, this discussion though is not new. It has been happening for decades. Um, and probably for at least, well, for at least as long and longer than both these things have had names, you know, feminism and environmental justice. So this morning, in the spirit of the, the conference, looking forward and looking back, I'm going to begin by asking each of our panelists this morning the same question. So looking back, what concepts, frameworks, or other contributions of past feminist scholarship do you think we need to be gathering particularly right now 
in the face of current environmental justice issues. And looking forward, what ideas have feminisms planted that we should be further cultivating? So in other words, what feminist contributions keep getting forgotten and why might that matter? And also though, what openings does feminist scholarship provide that we still need to amplify in relation to environmental justice more broadly? So now both of our speakers will um, provide uh, some thoughts on these questions and then we'll open it up to bring you into the conversation as well. And we'll begin with Sherry Lynn. Thank you. Right. Thank you, um, Astrida, for that introduction. Um, and thank you um, to the conference organizers for the invitation, for the warm welcome, and for the generous hospitality. It's a great honor to be here and to be invited to the keynote couch with, with Leslie and to have a conversation with all of you. And I think I'm going to try and answer those big questions that Astrida posed. Um, but I want to use my 10 minutes or or so, um, to really reflect backwards and forwards on the three component parts of the title of the session, um, environmental justice, materiality, and gender. And to do so, I'm going to draw on the insights and contributions of a book that I recently edited um, that's just come out in July, uh, the Routledge Handbook of Gender and Environment, which is part of the same series of handbooks that the Routledge Handbook on Environmental Justice is a part of um, that we celebrated last night. Um, and this, this handbook took me almost three years to put together, to curate, to, to collaborate, and to develop sort of 35 chapters uh, on all kinds of different themes on gender and environment. Um, and I want to just maybe start by reading the opening uh, paragraph of the book, just to give you a sense of the what, the why, and the who. So the handbook represents um, the state of the art of the academic field of gender and environment. One intention of the handbook is to showcase the variety of perspectives, themes, and debates that have shaped the intellectual project of trying to understand the gender environment nexus within the social sciences and humanities over the last three or four decades. Another intention is to demonstrate that under the banner of gender and environment sits a diverse, theoretically sophisticated and empirically grounded collection of approaches that have in common a set of concerns about gender injustice and the degradation of the natural environment. With some of its roots reaching into the fertile soil of activist movements, this scholarship, particularly within the tra tradition of ecological feminism, has been motivated by the pursuit of justice in the face of diverse and interlocking forms of oppression but it has also contributed theoretical insights that in many cases were ahead of, its, ahead, of their, ahead of their time. Arguably, gender and environment scholarship was materialist and post-humanist before these concepts gained popularity or regained popularity in mainstream Western academia. An intersectional analysis of capitalism, colonialism, rationalist science, racism, misogyny, heterosexism, and speciesism has always been a central, has a central part of feminist ecological scholarship. And contrary to popular opinion in many corners of environmental studies, this work has very little to do with the claim that women are closer to nature than men. In fact, much of it is aimed at questioning the very ideas of women 
and nature, and at understanding the myriad ways in which gender as a social category and, pow and a power relation shapes and is shaped by the interhuman relations as well as the human relations with other species and environments. Yet the idea that it is at base a simplistic narrative about women saving the planet persists in spite of all the evidence. The Routledge Handbook of Gender and Environment aims to dispense with this caricature once and for all. So those are fighting words, really, aren't they? Um, so let me turn to the three component concepts in the, in the title of the, the panel. Um, as you can tell from what I've just read, um, justice has always been at the heart of uh, the intellectual project of feminist environmentalism, and it shares uh, many uh, things in common with environmental justice scholarship. Of, uh, the, probably the most notable one is the fact that feminist environmental uh, justice has always tried to think about justice as a tripartite concept, so with distribution, recognition, and participation uh, as, as important concepts within the notion of justice. Um, but what is the relationship between environmental justice scholarship and feminist environmental scholarship? This is a question I'd like us to think about. Um, and I think it would be really interesting to hear from the people who were at the Melbourne conference 20 years ago to, to hear what they, their, their memory of what that conversation might have been like about the relationship between, say, ecofeminism and environmental justice, and what you think about um, how this relationship has, evo has evolved over the last 20 years. Certainly, I find it interesting that uh, in the two handbooks that I've just mentioned, the Handbook of Environmental Justice and the Handbook of Gender and Environment, there's one chapter in, in each handbook on the intersections of feminism and environmental justice. Greta Gard has written a chapter for Gordon's handbook on feminism and environmental justice, and Julie C. has written a chapter for my handbook called Gender and Environmental Justice. Um, and they're very similar in many ways, and one of the things that they, that they reflect on, looking back, is the lack of engagement between feminist uh, scholarship and environmental justice scholarship, and the fact that race and class have tended to be the, the, the dominant uh, um, social markers within environmental justice scholarship. So looking back, this lack of engagement is problematized by both of these authors. But looking forward, um, both of them have some sense of optimism that things are starting to change. Um, and one of the things that um, Julie C. talks about is that there is evidence that there is a more sort of um, intersectional approach to environmental justice scholarship, uh, particularly looking at how gender, race, and class intersect in activism around uh, toxics, around um, reproductive rights, around uh, things like asthma and air pollution. But the thing is, I also find it interesting that the three examples that she gives of this research is her own, um, the work of Bindi Shah and the work of Giovanna DiCiro, who are all feminist scholars. Um, so I wonder about the, how optimistic we should really be. And, and, to this, and, to, and this, by the same token, Gard, uh, Greta Gard talks about the reasons for optimism and looking at the climate justice movement, the global climate justice movement, which is uh, bringing together in a coalition and solidarity lots of different groups from, from different social categories and social ident identities, uh, and that this is probably a good sort of change in the way um, we're understanding the relationship between 
um, feminist politics and environmental politics. However, I think there's also reason to be skeptical as well, and we need to do more research, really, to see what the gender politics within the climate justice movement really is. And there's some really interesting research done by a couple of early career scholars um, named Joe Kerno and Jody Chan, who are working within the climate justice movement in, US, in the US campuses, and they've done really interesting research to show that even within this very intersectional and multicultural movement of, of campus climate justice politics, white men still seem to dominate in how the, the, the organization of the, of the campaigns, the who speaks for who, who, who um, leads. So I think that's an inter interesting kind of thing to reflect on. Materiality. Now, I don't know how materiality got in the topic. The, the, oh, God, two minutes. One minute on materiality, one minute on gender. But we can come back to these things. Okay, so the main thing I want to say about materiality is I don't know how, why it's in the title of this because neither um, Leslie and I really write much on, on materiality. But materiality is still extremely important and has always been extremely important in feminist environmental scholarship. Looking back... Uh, materiality and materialism was really uh, the, the, the connections with bodies, the connection with, um, with matter was at the heart of feminist critiques of, of capitalism and so forth. Women's concern for their bodies, their own bodies, the health of, of the, their bodies and the, and the bodies of loved ones of all species was very much a, a catalyzing force for their activism. Um, and we also see that the use of the term material ecofeminism was a deliberate attempt to try to connect um, e feminist scholarship, sort of feminist scholarship and Marxist scholarship to understand the importance of thinking about reproductive labor um, in mediating um, matter and human needs, nature and human needs. And Mary Meller's chapter in the handbook is a very good um, story of that, the, the development of that, um, that critique. Um, the theme in the book that I would draw out, though, is that this sort of turn to new materialism, which seems to be a very popular um, trend in, um, over the last 10 years, um, this has caused a little bit of concern amongst um, ecofeminist scholars. And in fact, not just concern, but Kate, Kate Sandilands is infuriated by the way that new materialism tends to be built on forgetting an erasure of the contributions of ecofeminist scholarship since the very beginning. Uh, and it's similar to the critique that Sarah Ahmed has made of new materialism, that it is, can, can only sort of present itself as new if it erases the contributions of feminist science studies and the, the scholarship of Donna Haraway, which is also plays a very important role in the handbook and many chapters draw on Donna Haraway's work. Finally, gender. In an, I'm going over time, I'm sorry. But finally, I mean, I could say, there's so much I could say about how gender um, is how gender appears, how it's taken up, how it's analyzed in the handbook. Looking back, we know that the beginnings of ecofeminist scholarship was really to look about, at women's experience, and gender was often treated as a single axis category, uh, which then created a, a sense of, of, of exclusivity that ecofeminism was criticized for. However, recent work and situation today uh, we can say that very, almost no ecofeminist scholarship uses 
uh, a single axis analysis uncritically. Uh, in fact, I don't think that that has happened since the early 90s, since the important work of Bina Agarwal, who talked about lessons from India and how um, some of the work that was being written in the late 80s was, um, was rather uh, perhaps essentialist uh, uh, in the way it understood gender, but also the work of Kimberly Crenshaw on intersectionality, which is now pervasive in feminist scholarship on environment. The handbook demonstrates also that going forward, the uh, contributions of queer ecologists, trans ecologists, people writing about non-Western gender systems, such as indigenous gender systems that are more kaleidoscopic and non-binary, and how these can help us understand human relationships with nature. I mean, these are the, these are the, 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 the growing kind of important and exciting uh, contributions going forward. But the final frontier, and my final comment, what is the final frontier in gender and environment scholarship? Any guesses? Masculinity. We need to talk about masculinity, right? Um, there's no chapters in the, gen the handbook on environmental justice on men. There's no man chapter. I had a really hard time finding someone to write the man chapter for the gender and environment uh, handbook. There's not a lot of research. Gen masculinity remains, and particularly um, white elite hegemonic masculinity remains pretty much an unmarked category in environmental justice research, and I think that needs to change. So going forward, we need to think about how um, a better understanding of justice embraces an anti-androcentrism principle, and I take that from Nancy Fraser's definition of gender justice, and one of the most important principles of gender justice, according to, to Nancy Fraser, which does mark it out as different from other interpretations of justice, is that we can't really build a sense of social justice if, there are, if men are at the center, if, if we have androcentric understandings, understandings of justice. So how do we think about an anti-androcentric uh, environmental justice scholarship? How does environmental justice scholarship contribute to an anti-androcentrist struggle? I look forward to your thoughts. Thank you. Fantastic. We'll hear those thoughts in a minute. And in the meantime, let's uh, listen to Leslie. Thanks, Estrada. And can I echo the various thanks for the organizers and our many welcomes? Um, so several generations of feminist scholars have done a lot of work that we can use, as Sherilyn's just outlined. I would go back to Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex. Her explanation of woman as other, published in 1949, is a very profound analysis that also helps us understand all the different kinds of othering relevant to environmental justice discussions. So we've just heard in the previous session about othering of species. Uh, in many of the sessions of the conference, indigenous peoples. So this is othering against presumed norms. This work helps us analyze and understand all kinds of categorizations, including the category of species itself, as we've just um, heard in the previous session also. So Sherilyn has given us a great overview. I'm going to come in a little bit sideways here and ground my remarks in the example of our emotional responses to climate change. This connects to a number of comments I heard in the various sessions yesterday. In the course of writing about grief and hope, I went to interview some climate scientists. 
So here is a group of people whose day job is modelling the end of the world as we know it. And I wanted to know how they felt about this and how they experienced um, uh, their emotional lives in relation to their work. So feminists have long argued that the emotional is missing in many accounts of the socio-spatial world. Feminist analyses of emotion have shown how it's viewed as being separate from and beneath the faculties of thought and reason. To be emotional in this understanding is to have one's judgment affected. It is to be reactive rather than active, dependent rather than autonomous. Instead, scholars such as Sarah Ahmed have shown how this is a false dichotomy and that being emotional does not imply irrationality or Hila Koskela writing about reasoning as a strategy to contain fear in the context of women's personal safety. However, the attempt to separate emotion and reason was a common theme in my interviews with climate scientists. They spoke of the crucial importance of doing rigorous science as underpinning everything their work entailed and the basis of their professional reputations. One of them, who I called Jeff, described this as keeping the heart a long way from the brain. For Jeff, emotions were to be distanced from rational thinking in order to produce accurate and reliable data. In a similar way, Gary acknowledged the emotional dimensions of the scientific projections and data that he helped to produce, yet illustrated how he finds it necessary to actively eliminate these uh, emotional dimensions, saying, I would prefer to describe what constitutes a catastrophe rather dispassionately without taking on the emotional impact of that. So the context in which these scientists are working, and they weren't all uh, male scientists, but the context includes not only the masculinist science model, but also an intense public debate around their truth claims. They're constantly having to defend themselves and their work against climate change denialists. So they can only keep going by doing a huge amount of emotional labour to build on Ali Hochschild's concept. So here again is a concept from uh, feminist scholarship that we can uh, draw on here to understand what's going on. The scientists' emotional labour includes disciplining themselves against the norm of dispassionate science. They try and switch off at home. They don't talk about climate change with their kids. They don't talk about climate change with taxi drivers and they don't talk in social situations about the fact that they're a climate scientist. They also engage in what one of them called compulsory optimism. How can we connect this to us and to what we're talking about here at the conference? What are the consequences of all this? Apart from the fact that I did feel that, the, that some of these poor old climate scientists might feel better if they read some of Sarah Ahmed's work. Um, one consequence is that it contributes to what Kane and Bruce and, our, and her co-authors call erring on the side of least drama. Their work shows how the dispassionate norm in science leads to scientists being biased not towards alarmism but rather the, the reverse. There's a kind of systematic downplaying of the likelihood of catastrophe. In another example, Lauren Rickards and her colleagues identified strong parallels between masculinism, rationality and optimism in their analysis of how senior decision makers respond to climate change. But as Katrina McKinnon says, it is not obvious that people in despair about tackling climate change are making a mistake. Rather, we could suggest that they are taking a rational approach to managing their emotional responses. 
So the conventional wisdom is that fear and pessimism won't do it. We actually saw this yesterday in the discussion. Uh, there was a question to one of the panels, um, what do we do? Um, the panel was a bit stumped. Uh, I think it included a suggestion, let's go to Mars. Um, but they urged us to stay positive, be optimistic. The labour of optimism and its companion, the suppression of doom and gloom, conform to feeling rules frequently observed in Western culture. The expectation to manage emotions, to remain optimistic, and to thus emphasise pleasurable emotions over painful ones. So I've argued instead that we in the affluent West are grieving for the loss of modernity and its investment in a future characterised by hope. It's difficult to discuss grief and associated negative emotions because of strong cultural pressure to be optimistic and positive. So I want to reject the cultural assumption that even to canvass these issues is to give in to them or to give up or to assume the worst. Instead, I would say that a relentless cultural disposition to focus disproportionately on positive outcomes in the face of rational evidence to the contrary is itself a kind of denial. So I argue that grief is a companion that will increasingly be with us and more open acknowledgement of that fact will strengthen rather than weaken our collective capacities. So what then does that make hope? Hope, I don't have time to um, talk about that fully, but hope is a, a risky and complex process of possibility. In particular, I suggest we need to decouple hope and optimism and recognise that a broader range of emotions, including painful ones, are entangled in hope. Hope is conceptualised then, and again this draws on a history of feminist scholarship, as embodied practice. It is something to be practised rather than felt. So one difference to 1997 is that the future looks much less certain than it did 20 years ago. We have to expect surprises, we have to expect dramatic thresholds of change and unfolding catastrophes. But you don't need to be explicitly working on gender issues to draw on a number of tools from feminist scholarship to help us think about these issues. Thank you very much.